how many of you recognize this individual right here? Anybody recognize this guy? Somebody said it. It's, so there was someone groaning like, ugh. Uh, yeah, so this guy is named Joey Chestnut. You might know what Joey Chestnut is famous for online. If you've got it, let us know. Famous for hot dog. Yeah, he's famous. He holds a world record for eating 75 hot dogs in 10 minutes. That's pretty awesome, okay? So that's impressive. We as a society, for some reason, we get a kick out of stuff like this. Like, we want to see this happen. Like, it's become a shoemake family tradition that on 4th of July, we watch the Nathan's hot dog eating competition. But did you know that there are actually more competitive eating competitions? There's, like, competitive crawfish eating, which anybody crawfish fans in the room, you're just, like, sucking mud bug brains. That's, that's love it. It's delicious. Um, cow tongue. There's all these different things. Well, I want to see if you know this lady. Anybody recognize this lady? No? This lady is named Michelle Leska. Would you like to guess what she is a competitive eating champion of? I'll give you a hint. It's my least favorite ingredient of all time. Mayonnaise. (laughs) This woman is the competitive eating champion of mayonnaise. She holds the record, and that record is three of like the traditional like Dukes or whatever kind of mayonnaise you eat, Miracle Whip, all that nasty stuff. She is, a, she, is, she is the competitive eating champion. The world record she has is three of those jars in three minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Make you think twice about ordering potato salad this afternoon. It's nasty. But, but here's the thing. We as a culture, we, we love to eat. Like uh, many of you right now, like you're like, hey, I'm coming to church. You know, it is what it is. Some of you are here because somebody bribed you with going out to a good restaurant after this. You're like, okay, cool. And some of you, like you're just waiting on me to be done so that you can go eat. We as a culture love to eat. But here's what I want you to know. I think God hardwired the desire to eat inside of us, not just so that we would stay alive. I believe that God hardwired this desire for us to eat, to fill our faces with fried chicken and cheeseburgers, tacos, Tacos. Oh, tacos. I love tacos. He created that desire in us, not just so that we would stay alive, but I believe it's part of his mission. We've been in this series called Bless, and this whole series has been about us figuring out what is our mission as people who would say, I'm a Christian. So if you're in this room, and if you were pulled by a random stranger on the street, and they said, hey, are you a Christian? If you said yes to that question, then the next question I would ask you is, okay, so if you're a Christian, what does that mean? What do you do? What are you here for? What's your mission in life? What's the purpose of being a Christian? Jesus made that really clear. He said, all authority in the world has been given to me, which is his way of saying, like, I kind of make the rules from here on out. Like, you got to listen to me. I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. He said, because all authority has been given to me, go into the world and make disciples. That, friend, is your mission, to go into the world and make disciples. Now, I love MCC because I believe MCC is a disciple-making church. And you can love being a part of MCC because MCC is a church that makes disciples. But oftentimes, we just think, okay, well, I hope people get discipled. And this whole blessed series is about not just hoping people get discipled, but helping people get discipled. Because, friend, whether you realize this or not, God has a call on your life. He has a purpose in your life. For every person who births a child, God's purpose is to say that you would be the primary disciple of that kid's life, that you would lead them to Jesus, that you would maybe even be the one who baptizes that child. And so that's our purpose, is to see people who are lost be found. And God wants to use people like me and you to do it. So we've been in this series, Bless, 
So we've been figuring out how can you be a blessing to people where you live, work, and play because there is no greater blessing than coming into a relationship with Jesus. And today, we've been walking through this strategy, bless, where we've used this acronym to help us learn how. How do we do it? Okay, my call on my life is to make disciples. How in the world do I do that? I want to, but I don't know how to. When we started the series, we said the first thing, if you're going to try to make something the supernatural happen, it can't happen with your own natural resources. So we have to begin with prayer. And from there we said, hey, if we're going to meet people where they are and try to share Jesus with them, we've got to listen and figure out actually where they are. So we talked about listening, being able to hear people, understand where they're at, understand what their family of origin is, knowing those things. And today we're on my favorite part. We're on eat. And believe it or not, eating is a huge part of Jesus' mission. You know, all these families who are just up here, if they just did this one simple thing, they would probably be putting their child's spiritual trajectory on a faster pace towards a relationship with Jesus more than any other thing. You want to guess what that one thing is? It may not be reading the Bible to them every single night. It may not be sitting around and praying for them all the time. The one simple thing that these families can do that may point their children closer to Jesus than anything else is actually sitting around a dinner table eating a meal with them multiple times throughout the week. Studies have been shown, and they've done research and figured out that actually kids who are able to meet and eat dinner with their families on a consistent basis are way less likely to struggle with anxiety and depression. Kids who eat dinner with their families are more likely to have higher test scores. Kids who eat dinner with their families are more likely to not struggle with addiction, whether it's alcohol or cigarettes. And see, there's, there's a lot that goes into play around a dinner table. And Jesus... He knew this. And when we look at Jesus' life, when you would, you know, if you went up to a random stranger on the street and you said, hey, what's some of the most important things that Jesus did? You get a whole lot of, well, he died and rose again. You get that a lot, and yes, for sure, that's there. And then after that, you'd probably get some stuff like, you know, he healed blind people, and he, he walked on water, and those are some of the important things he did. But what I want you to see, and this is what we're going to dive into today, is some of the most important things Jesus did revolved around eating. Matter of fact, Jesus' very first miracle, the first thing he does to show up on the scene and show people that he is, in fact, God's son, he is Jesus, is he performs a miracle of turning water into wine. And do you know where he did that at? A wedding feast. Jesus was on the hillside, and everybody was starving. And Jesus says, hey, does anybody got anything to eat? And they're like, hey, we don't really have a whole lot. And this one little boy brings him essentially a snack, the ver- you know, that day and age version of a snack pack. And he brings it up. Brings his lunchable to Jesus, and Jesus turns it into a meal for 5,000 people. Jesus, on the night that he was going to be betrayed, he's sitting down and he's eating with disciples. Instead of giving them just this long lecture of this list of to-do things while he's gone, Jesus instead has what with them? He has a meal. Jesus, after he's resurrected, one of the very first things he does is he shows up on the shoreline with his disciples. And as they're coming in with a miraculous catch of fish, what does he already have going on the shoreline? Breakfast. See, eating was critical to Jesus' message. And time and time again, if you read through the Gospels, what you see is Jesus uses meals, meals, people, as the things that change people's lives. And what if Jesus would use something as simple as eating with other people in your life to be what allows them to have a relationship with him? We're going to read a story today in the Gospel of Matthew. If you've got a Bible, you can go there. Matthew is a guy who essentially went out to go and write a biography about Jesus' life. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Matthew's kind of writing the story of Jesus' life from his perspective. And he had a unique perspective. We're going to find out a little bit of what his perspective was like 
here as we dive into Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Matthew 9, 9 through 13. Let's listen to the story together. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. So again, who's writing this book of Matthew? Matthew. All right, so Matthew is writing himself into the story, which is pretty cool. He writes himself into the story. So as Jesus went on from there, he met a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, he was sitting at a tax collector's booth because he was a, you guessed it, tax collector. That's what his job was. That's what his role was. We'll get into that in a second. So he's sitting there, and Jesus sees him. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, so fast forward a little bit, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right? Let's try to get our eyes and minds around what's actually happening in this story. So Jesus is walking around. He's kind of got this itinerant ministry where he's walking around, going from town to town, healing people, teaching people. And he stops. And along this road, there's a tax collector's booth. Now, in that day and age, I need you to understand what a tax collector was. A tax collector was someone who was Jewish. So Jesus is a Jew. Most of his disciples at this point in time are also Jewish men. And a Jewish tax collector, though he was a Jewish citizen, worked for the Roman government who most Jews felt was oppressive, and they hated. And so all of his brothers and sisters, all of his Jewish friends and family, they would have looked at him as if he was a traitor because he was being used by the Roman government to extort money from his own people. Now, what tax collectors were known for doing is if you owed 10% of your income, a tax collector would come to you and say, the ledger says that you owe 15% of your income. You would then give him 15%. He would pocket five and give 10 to the government. Thieves. So the way we think when we feel about the IRS or taxation, just multiply that by a lot and put a face on it, a face that you would see at Kroger. That's how people felt about tax collectors. And so for Jesus, even to come up to this guy and go, hey, let me start a conversation with you. Let's get to know each other. To sit down and kind of, you know, ask him what's going on in his life was a huge deal. And I would imagine the rest of Jesus' disciples are going like, we're stopping here? What are we doing, Jesus? Jesus, you don't have an income. You don't got to pay these. And we just go around and we kind of live off of whatever happens. So Jesus stops and he gets to know this man named Matthew. Now remember... Matthew hasn't read the gospel because he hasn't wrote it yet. So he doesn't know who Jesus is or that he's going to rise from the dead. So he's having this conversation with this guy that I believe through the conversation, through the looks that he gives, through the way he listens and hears and the questions that he asks, he knows that there's something different about this man who showed up at his booth. And Jesus invites him in in that moment to follow him. And friend, that's an invitation that you have gotten from Jesus too. Maybe you've ignored it. Maybe you've accepted it. But everybody in this room has gotten an invitation from Jesus to, where he has said, follow me. Matthew answers it. I want you to see what happens after Matthew answers the invitation to follow Jesus. What Jesus doesn't do is go, all right, let me see your browsing history. Open that phone up, bro. Let's see what you've been looking at. We're going to delete this real quick. We're going to delete these apps. No more Bumble, Tinder, none of that. We're getting all of that out of here, Matthew. None of this is allowed if you're going to follow me. 
He doesn't ask to see his browsing history. He doesn't ask to see his pockets. He doesn't say, empty your pockets. I need to know how much percentage of money you took from people this week. He doesn't say, hey, we got a discipleship class happening on Mount Carmel, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays from 430 to 5:30. I need you to show up for that, and I need you to sign right here that you're going to be a part of that class. What he says to this man, Matthew, who is looked at as a traitor, who didn't fit in anywhere else, who is looked at as a sinful thief, he looks at him and he goes, Let's have dinner. Matter of fact, let's go to your place. And so they do eat dinner together. Not only that, this is crazy. Matthew, I don't know if Matthew had some folks camped out at his house already. If he just had people, he just had like the tax collector crash pad. It doesn't really go into detail on all that. But somehow they get to the house, get ready to eat dinner. And not only is it just Matthew and Jesus and the disciples there eating dinner, there's a lot more tax collectors. So Jesus has now gone from hanging out with one tax collector, which to all the original religious elite would have gone, oh my goodness, how dare you eat with tax collectors? How dare you even talk to a tax collector? They're thieves. They're traitors. And Jesus goes and breaks bread and eats, not just with one tax collector, but with multiple tax collectors. And then Matthew is writing the story, remember, so he's talking about his friends, the people who are in his home, his guests who he's being hospitable to. He says he's, he's eating with tax collectors and other tax collectors were invited. On top of that, there were other sinners. And in that day and age, sinners was just this catch-all phrase to anybody who lived a messed up lifestyle. So sinners, when you think of that, probably including pimps, prostitutes, thieves, murder, whatever you are, the people who wouldn't have fit in in society, they're here at this table. They're in Matthew's house. And they're the people who Jesus is eating with. Now, in that day and age, you've got to understand something about the cultural context of eating together. It wasn't like, hey, we just happen to be at Zaxby's and, and like the meth kingpin is over across there. Like it's, it, was, it was a deeper thing than you just being in the same room with somebody who may be sinful. See, eating was a deeply intimate thing that happened. It wasn't like what we do where we just, you know, we're, we're eating burritos or driving down the road, driving with our knees. Like it was something where everything stopped in society and we conversed. We talked. Nobody was on their phone because we didn't have those. There was nothing really to get up and go do after this. And Jesus is sitting down eating what is likely dinner, which dinner brought the connotation that this is going to be a long extended time of talking because there's no work to be done after this. We're just going to go to sleep. And really what happened most, more often than not is they talked themselves into sleep. They talk, 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 talk until wee hours of night and they'll go to sleep. They wake up the next morning and they do it again. So eating and who you ate with was essentially your way of saying, these people are in my circle. These are my, these are my close people. These are the people I affirm. These are the people I am for. And so Jesus being in this moment with these people ruffles the feathers of the religious elite in the room. And so they see this. They see his feathers ruffled. They see what's going on. And the religious leaders, they're in the room, and they do what religious people do. They kind of stand on the outside. And instead of asking uh, the really person in charge the question, they ask the other people in the room. And so they go because they want to undermine Jesus' authority. They go not to Jesus to ask the question of why he's doing what he's doing. They go to his disciples. And so I don't know, maybe they, they call over Peter or John. Say, hey, come here. Why? Let me, let, me, let me ask you something. Why does your teacher, and again, they're saying, why, why would you let some, they're implying, why would you let somebody who does that teach you? Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners. Now, this is where I wish I could have been in the room 
because I imagine Jesus just mid-bite of a land chop, and he overhears them saying this, and he pauses, and I think through like a halfway stuffed mouth, he goes, is it not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick? And these guys, I think, go, oh, whoa, he heard us. And I think Jesus, as he's continuing to finish his lamb chop, goes, yeah, I heard you. Because you're questioning why I would do what I do. You're questioning why I love these people the way I love them. And so, yeah, I'm listening. Because you're not just trying to undermine me. You're, under, you're trying to undermine my mission, which is to seek and save those who realize that they're unrighteous, who realize that they're sick and messed up. See, that's the, that's the thing that he was trying to get here. He wasn't when he said, it's, don't you know that it's the sick who need the doctor, not the healthy? What he was not saying is, you Pharisees, you're good to go already. Like, you're taken care of. No, what he was trying to say to them is, this prostitute over here is just as sick and in need of my healing and my salvation as you in your religious purity and your pride. Both of them have made you sick. Both of them are unable to be healed by your own doing. I'm the only person in the room who's the doctor who can heal any of this. He's saying, you think you're righteous, but you're wrong. They actually, they're maybe one baby step ahead of you because they're actually sitting around this table realizing that they're in need of a savior. They're in need of somebody who can help put their life together. They're in need of somebody who maybe represents the God of the universe to spend time to get to know them, to answer questions, to hear them out. And that's what's happening in this story. And so Jesus tells them that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he goes and I think he kind of puts a knife in and turns it a little bit and really gives them a good jab and kind of undermines them in in doing so. He quotes from the Old Testament there at the end of that verse, right there in verse uh, 13. He says, go and learn what this means, which is his way of saying, you guys think you're know-it-alls. You think you've read the Bible backwards and forwards. You think you've memorized all this stuff. Let me tell you what you don't know, though. You don't know God's character. You know about God, but you don't know him. If you knew God, you would know what it says when he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, what he's saying here is that if you read your Bible, you would understand that God is concerned less with whatever it is that you feel like you're sacrificing or given to keep up to your religious moral code. What our God actually desires is that you have mercy. Not on God. You can't have mercy on God. That would, mercy is when you withhold punishment that somebody is due because of the wrong that they've done to you. Mercy is when you don't give somebody the thing that they do deserve. So you can't have mercy on God because God's never done anything wrong to you. But he's saying what God is more concerned with is how you have mercy on his children. What God is more concerned with than you keeping all of your religious laws is how you have mercy and empathize with the people who are around this table right now. He's telling these guys, plain and simple, you have missed it. Now, what I want you to see in this, friend, I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you want to even accept the invitation. But Jesus was showing at the table of this tax collector that anyone and everyone regardless of their sins, mistakes, failures, and shortcomings, has a place at his table. And again, a table wasn't just a place that you eat. It wasn't just lunch detention at school. Having a place at his table means that he is for you, that he is going to learn, he's going to listen, that he's going to hear you out, that you are part of his family because you're able to be at his table. And I want you to know, and you're going to have an opportunity to do it at the end of the service, 
there's an open invite for you at the table where Jesus longs to meet and be with you. So he uses his table to be a place where life change happens. Now, to apply it to our lives here, like as church people, some of you are church people, some of you are not church people, that's great. This is a place where everybody can come in and belong. But here's my question. If Jesus was to show up here, would he show up and go like, hey, good job. Like, you showed up and you logged in online. You showed up in person. Like, you waited on those stacked chairs. Like, you came to watch your family member's child get dedicated. Good job of showing up. But would he then ask, hey, I'm proud of you for showing up at church. Like, I know that's something. But why aren't you showing up anywhere else? Why aren't you showing up for the people who need you at work? Why aren't you showing up for your neighbors? Why aren't you showing up and having mercy on the people who I want to bless through you? Like, I've called you to bless them. And see, maybe the big question we need to ask ourselves today is like, if we don't show up for the people who Jesus wants to, like if we just come to church, but we don't show up for the people who Jesus wants to bless through us, who are we in the story? We're the Pharisees. We're the people who say, well, I know what religious people do, and I do what religious people do, and I am happy with that. Meanwhile, Jesus is at the table with sinners, learning their story, pointing them towards Christ. It's going to take one of these sinners named Matthew to write a gospel that's in every printed Bible. I mean, think about what's really going on here. Think about if you're Matthew. You go from being looked down on, despised, marginalized, looked at as a traitor, to being someone who writes a story, writes a biography about Jesus that's passed down for thousands and thousands of years that people read and then come to know Jesus 2,000 years later because you said yes to an invitation to sit down and welcome Jesus into your home to eat with you. Man, and that's what's happening here. So big things happen when we use food, when we use tables to meet with people and eat with people. It's our way of saying to them, because I am in Jesus' circle, because I have been welcomed in to be a part of his family, you can be too. There's a quote by a, a Catholic uh, pastor named Henry Nouwen. He said this about this idea of eating with people. I want you to read this with me. He said, When we invite friends over for a meal... We do much more than offer them food for their bodies. We offer them friendship, fellowship, good conversation, intimacy, and closeness. When we say, help yourself, take some more, don't be shy, have another glass, we offer our guests not only our food to drink, but also ourselves. Our spiritual bond grows, and we become food and drink for each other. So we know this is important. We know that amazing things can happen when God's people actually begin to meet together and break bed together. And what I want to encourage you to do is to make this happen in your own life. See, I'm, I'm convinced of a few things. I'm convinced that this whole call of making disciples and living out the life of Jesus it's not as hard and as complicated as we've made it. And like what I want to, I feel like my call as a pastor, maybe it's a weird way of saying this, is to take the cookies that religious elites have put up on the top shelf and move them way down to the bottom shelf and say like, they're right here, guys. Anybody can have these. 
Anybody can experience what it's like to break bread with somebody and, and, and talk and hear their story and lead them to Jesus. That, the, nothing special about those waters of baptism up there. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have gone to seminary. Like, if we live our lives as Christians and we, we die and, and, and we go to heaven and, and we never baptize somebody, again, I, I think we left cookies in the jar. Like, that's something you can do. I, I pray, like, all those kids who are up here and some of those kids are up here, like, I'm their pastor and I'm also in their community group. Like, our families are in there together. I, I was in the NICU with their families. I don't want to baptize them. I want, I want Tony Donaldson to baptize his kids. I want Chris Washington to baptize Wyatt. Because I, I want him as a dad. I want, I want Tony as a dad and Chris as a dad. And Katie and Katie to be the primary disciples of their kid's life. And, that, and, and again, let's move the cookies all the way down so that anybody and everybody can have as much of Jesus as they're willing to take. So I know where you're at maybe in your seats right now. You're like, hey, like, so you're telling me that in order to start sharing my faith with people, in order to start like being a disciple maker, I've got to like start eating with people. And if you're going, yep, mm-hmm, you're probably coming up with excuses. And so I want to call those excuses out and let's talk about them. Sound good? Here are our excuses. When we say, hey, this is what we need to do. First excuse is this. I don't like to have people at my house. You're just that type of person. You're like, hey, either my house is too cl- not clean. Either, we're on two sides of it. You're either like, my house is not clean enough, so I don't want to have people over. Or you're like, my house is too clean, and so I don't want to have people over. Especially people like the Donsons who have 75 kids. Like, they're definitely not coming. No way. And Jessica, she's in our family. She's the one who wants to have people over. I'm all for, I want people to come over, but I want them to be in the yard. Like, let's just be in the yard. <laughs> yard is funner anyway. We're outside cats. Um, but here's the deal. You don't got to bring them to your house. You can meet somewhere else. You can order food in. There's ways to make this happen. Another excuse that people make is, I don't know what to say. Anybody feel like they have a spiritual gift of awkward? Like, especially when it comes to sharing their faith, it's like, how is this? This is going to be weird. Um, even, even like with people who we're good friends with, like when we get in a conversation, we invite people over for dinner, and like we're, we start talking, and then you always get that moment in the conversation where everybody's like, everybody's eating, just forks are clanking, people are drinking, and then you hit that lull where nobody has anything to say, and some, somebody kind of leans back, and you're like waiting, like who's going to start, like who's going to say something. And if it's your house, you feel guilty because you feel like you should have prepared something. But we've all been there. In regards to this, though, it's not about what you have to say. It's actually about what they have to say. So I want to help you. I want to blow this excuse out of the water. It's not about you saying or preaching or, 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 or you know, going, okay, well, I'm glad you're here for dinner now. Well, here's actually my agenda. Open your Bible to blah, 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 blah. Like, they're going to leave. It's going to happen. Or they're going to feel awkward and they're never going to come back. Here's what you can do instead. I, I want to give you a list of questions. Maybe you take a picture of this, whatever. Here's, here's what you can ask. It's not about you talking. It's about them talking. Again, it goes back to the L in the blessed strategy. Listen to them. Where'd you grow up? What's your family like? What kind of job do you have or did you have? What do you like to do for fun? What are your dreams in the future? How did you meet? And again, if you're with somebody who you're looking to date, like don't ask them that. But if it's another couple, perfect question to ask. Here's what I found. And church people have taught me this a lot. People like to talk about themselves. They do. We like ourselves. Most of us in this room, your favorite person in this room is you. I'm just, that's our natural tendency. Like, we can try to over-spiritualize that and deny that, but most of us love us. And so people like to talk about themselves. And they like, they like it when people show interest in them. Because what we talked about last week, when people feel heard, people feel loved. And people want to listen to people who listen to them. 
So we ask them these questions. Now, this is, this is what I love about this, is when you do this, what do you get to do if you're the person who invites them over? You get to eat. Like, they're just sitting there talking, and you're just like, oh, mm-hmm, yeah, oh, okay, tell me more. And we just eat. It's awesome. Another excuse we make is, I don't have time. I just don't have time. I don't have time. Chuck, how many, how many times do you eat a day, man? Four or five, right? Chuck eats four or five times. He's a growing boy. He works outside. He cuts down trees. Of course he does. But most of us in this room, like, if we're not like Chuck or me, because we are on that same eating schedule, we're eating at least three times a day, like a real meal. And so if you're eating three times a day, you've got 21 different opportunities already in your calendar. Like, you don't have to add stuff on. It's there already. You're eating. All you have to do is add a person to it. And again, it's not about what you're eating. It's about who you're eating with. And so, listen... I've worked, I worked at Home Depot for a season when I was in between. I was young, trying to figure out ministry stuff. And, uh, man, I know, man, if you work retail, anybody work retail out here in the world today? Some people? Yeah, I'm praying for you. Um, my mom is still, still a manager at Home Depot. She's got some hilarious stories working retail. Um, man, you go on a lunch break? I'll be honest. You don't want to go. You want to just be in your car. You're like, you just want to go in your car and take a nap. Well, we've been there. But listen, God has put you at your workplace. First of all, he's blessed you with a job, which, hallelujah, amen, you got a job. Way to go. Secondly, he's put you there on mission. You don't have a job just to provide for your family. You, that, you first and foremost have a job, a job to provide for your family, but you also have a job to be able to help people come into a relationship with Jesus where you live, where you work, and where you play. And so maybe you ain't got to do it every single day. Go take a nap in your pickup truck if you need to. But at least once a week, go and buy a young guy out with you to lunch. Go invite one of your co- female coworkers out with you for lunch if you're a female. I think I would definitely be hesitant on doing that opposite role, opposite gender side of thing. Probably asking for trouble there. But be smart. Invite people over. You got a, you know, a guy that you work with and he's you know, thinking about marrying this girl? Invite him over to your house. Get him to know your wife. Your wife will know whether she's crazy or not real quick. And you can help him out. <laughs> you can help him. Help a brother out. See, this is, again, it's not as, it's not as complicated as we've made it. I want to tell you a story about how transformation can happen around a table. My table's at my house, your table's at your house, even something as simple as a McDonald's table. There's a story uh, that went viral here a couple of Thanksgivings ago about this um, woman in her 70s named Jan and a young man named Eric. And so both of them, on a Thursday morning, they go to McDonald's. They just go to grab breakfast. And they're there, and they're sitting kind of across the restaurant from each other. Jan... Whatever's going on in Jan's life that day, she doesn't want to be alone. So Jan picks up her tray. She walks over to Eric, and she says, hey, Eric, or she didn't know his name. Hey, is it okay if I eat with you? And Eric is a, is a little confused, but says, yeah, and invites her to sit on down. They come to start a conversation and get to know each other. They come to find out that they have a shared interest in arts, and Jan shares some wisdom about how we shouldn't judge people until we know their whole story and what they're going through that day. And they eventually get to the place where they exchange numbers, Eric walks Jan to her car, and they promise to stay in touch. And a stranger, who wasn't a part of their conversation, snapped a picture of this, posted it to their Instagram or Facebook, I can't remember exactly where they posted it to, and that story went viral. I want you to see Eric and Jan. Now, I mean, you, can, you, look, at this, you look at the picture right here, Eric and Jan can't be more different, Right? Now, my question to uh, friends, why does this go viral? 
Like, why is this? Like, oh, how awesome is that? How amazing? Oh, man, look at this old white lady going to eat lunch with this young black guy. Wow, wow, that's amazing. Why does that go viral? Why is that so weird? I think it's because we've missed out and misunderstood part of Jesus' mission. What if, what if even in Henry County, we started to do crazy stuff like this? Crazy stuff out of love in our heart to say, you know what? Yeah, they're different than me. But you know what I feel right now? Loneliness. You know what it looks like they're probably feeling right now? Loneliness. You know what can make a dent in that loneliness? Us sitting down and talking to each other. See, the Bible makes it really clear that perfect love casts out fear. I don't know what what you're afraid of and going to meet and talk with people, afraid to mess up, afraid to have a weird conversation. I don't know. But listen, I want to live in a city where this type of stuff can't go viral anymore. I want to be a part of a church where this type of stuff happens day in and day out. And listen, even from the racial reconciliation side of things, like when was the last time somebody who looks different than you, votes different than you, and thinks different than you was ever in your home? That's where it starts. It doesn't start with politicians. It doesn't start by voting right. It doesn't start with policy. It doesn't really even start by going into the inner cities and trying to bring reform. It doesn't start by defunding police. It starts around the table of Christian men and women. That's where it starts. And so I'm, I'm encouraging us to be a church that's different. I'm encouraging you to find a way to invite somebody into your home who doesn't know Jesus and maybe doesn't even look like you. Start with your neighbors. Like, if you don't know your neighbors' names yet, get to know them. If you don't know the people who work on your floor or in your department, get to know them. Because I believe God wants to change the world around a table. And as we end today, we're going to come to that table where I believe it all started. See, before Jesus ever went to a cross, he went to a table. And he broke bread, and he poured out wine, and he said, from now on, when you eat of this meal, this isn't just Passover anymore. There, you don't need a sacrificial lamb anymore. I am that lamb. And I'm not just doing this to say that, hey, anybody can come to the table because I've made a way for them. I'm coming and saying, I am the way. My body is going to be broken. My blood is going to be shed to prove that anybody who will accept my love, accept me as their Savior, now they can have free passage into this family. So, friend, I want you to know that right here, right now, in this moment, you've been invited to sit at the table and to not just eat with Jesus, but to eat of Jesus. To allow, again, not in some weird way, his body to be actual food or actual drink, but to allow his relationship with you to be the nourishment that your soul deeply desires. And here's my, my challenge to you in this room. There's a lot of people in this room right now. As you take communion, don't make it awkward, but just look to your left and to the right. If you're one of those taller people in the room, just poke your head up and look around. And realize that we're eating this together. And I know we're in rows, and I wish we were in circles, because I believe that really is where life change happens best. But hear me. We're in this together. And this meal here is what will continue to keep us together as we unify around the blood that was poured out for our sins so that we can go lead people to understand that his blood was poured out for theirs as well. I'm going to pray and invite you to meet with Jesus. And then we're going to stand and sing. Jesus, we love you. 
We thank you for your grace and mercy poured out on us in ways that we'll never be able to understand or realize. But as we meet with you in these moments, I pray that it speaks to us in ways that change something. That we can encounter something real, God. I pray, Jesus, that your relationship with us would be what nourishes our hearts and souls. That we would no longer be lonely, that we would no longer be bound, but that you would use something as simple as a meal to fully satisfy, to set free, to make whole what this world has taken from us. We love you, Jesus. We beg you to move in our hearts now so that we would never be the same. Lay those people on our heart, God, who you want us to invite around our tables with. The people who we are called to meet with and eat with for the gospel's sake. In your name, Jesus, amen.